beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul was on his missionary journey, he didn't spend a long time in Thessalonica because he faced such fierce opposition. He had to leave. But he always had a special place in his heart for the small young congregation. And that's why later on when Timothy came from Thessalonica to Paul in Rome and shared with him some of the questions and the struggles that the young congregation was experiencing, Paul's pastor's heart kicked into high, uh, jump, kicked into high gear and he promptly wrote a letter to Thessalonica addressing their concerns, addressing their struggles. We saw an example of that in 1 Thessalonians 4. This was a small congregation, mostly comprised of people who used to be pagans. they just come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They seemed to have the idea that Christ was coming any day. He, he was just around the corner. But then somebody died. Grandpa died. A brother died. A sister and people were confused. Where are they? They, they died, and Christ is not here yet. Are, are they gone? Have they vanished? Are, are they in, in, in hell? It was a horrible situation for them. Well, Paul promptly addresses that, and he says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Paul even uses a euphemism that means a nice sweet word for death, calling it sleep. What Paul's basically making clear is that when a believer dies, they fall asleep to this world, but they're with Jesus Christ in heaven. In fact, says Paul, on the last day when the trumpet is sounded and the archangel calls, Jesus Christ will come with all the souls of those who have died. And first order of business is their bodies will be raised up and given back to them, and we will join them together in the new heaven and new earth. Paul ends that section by saying, therefore, encourage each other with these words. And that's an encouragement to us as well in our own circles, in our own congregation. There are those who recently, or in the last year or two, have experienced the death of a loved one. And while that is so sad, so unbelievable, unbelievably difficult to experience and to accept, we don't live without hope. We know it is well with them. It's well with their soul. They are with Jesus Christ in heaven. And one day we will be together again with the tears wiped from our eyes. Now that brings us to our, our text. And what Paul does here is it's a related topic, but it's something new. Paul has been talking about those who die. And when Christ returns, he comes with their souls. He now starts to talk about the return of Jesus Christ. And notice, notice how this section ends. It ends the same way as chapter 4 does. Therefore, encourage one another, build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. And that's so important, because I know from my own uh, experience, when I read 1 Thessalonians 5, then I had that kind of careless approach that I said, oh, this is like in the days of Noah, when people didn't repent, and the flood came, and they all died. I think, you know, 1 Thessalonians 5 is all warning and judgment, the, the return of Jesus Christ, but it's not. It's there. The very first point that Paul wants to drive home is that the last day of the world, the day of judgment, is scary for unbelievers, but for believers, 
It's an incredibly beautiful, wonderful day. And when you understand that, that impacts our whole life right now. And that's what we're going to look at this morning under this theme, live faithfully and so be ready for Christ's return. We'll see three things. No escape for the unprepared, staying alert by faithful living, and encouragement of God's election. Now, our text is very clearly divided into three sections. And while they're related, each one is a slightly different topic. In our first point, which covers verses 1 through 3, Paul is speaking about the unexpected return of Jesus Christ and the havoc that that will wreak on those who don't believe. For believers, it's a great day. For an unbeliever, it will be a horrible day. Now, the opening line is typical Paul, typical Pastor Paul with a heart as as big as can be when he says, Now, brothers, about times and seasons, we do not need to write to you. See, what's happening is Timothy has come from Thessalonica, and he's saying to Paul, the congregation is confused, and they're actually concerned, they're, they're worried about that last day that when Christ returns, that, that day of judgment. And Paul, with his old pastor's heart, he says, basically, I told you that already. You know about it. I, I explained that to you. And Jesus Christ before that explained it as well. And then Paul goes on to explain it all over again. You, well, why would you say it that way, Paul? But it, it, he's thinking pastorally. Of course he's going to explain it to them if they have any questions. But what he wants to say is, you know, the life of a Christian isn't full of black holes. As a Christian, you don't go through life, you know, not knowing what to expect. Paul says, you know, the gospel is complete and it covers everything for body and soul and life and death. You know, you know what's going to happen on the last day. I'm going to reinforce it, but you will know that a Christian always has comfort. That's why we sang together Psalm 23. You know, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not afraid. You know why I'm not afraid? Because I know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul writes in verse 2, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In verse 3, he intensifies that image of a thief coming in the night, showing what the implication will be if you're not ready. But the heart of the matter here is found in verse 2. And it would almost be criminal if we didn't understand the point that Paul's making. He speaks here about the day of of the Lord. That's an expression found throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, especially in the minor prophets like Joel and Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi. The day of the Lord is the day that God draws near and he punishes the enemy. The day of the Lord came on the Philistines. The day of the Lord came on the Babylonians. Sometimes it comes on church people who don't believe, but by and large, it's the enemy. And when God punishes the enemy, he saves his people. When you punish the Babylonians, you go back to the promised land. Now, in the New Testament, the day of the Lord belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ. He died and rose again, ascended into heaven. He took the scroll and he opened the seals. He's running this world. The day of the Lord is his. When he will return on the clouds of heaven and he will judge everyone. 
He will discriminate, as he said in Matthew 24, between the sheep and the goats, between believers and unbelievers. Believers, he will wipe the tears from their eyes, bring them into a new heaven and new earth, paradise restored, whereas the unbelievers will go to hell, where they will weep and gnash their teeth eternally. The day of the Lord is the day that Jesus Christ comes to punish those who do not believe, but to take all those who believe in him into a new heaven and new earth. Paul adds in verse 3, while people are saying peace and security, destruction will come on them suddenly. While people are saying, who are these people? Well, in verses 1 and 4, he talks about brothers. That's us, brothers and sisters, right? People are not brothers. People are unbelievers. And they say we have peace and security, which is certainly true at that time in the Roman Empire the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Rome had peace because they had power and prosperity. Sounds like today. North America, people think they have peace and security. And why? Because we have financial st stability. Because we've got a good health system. We've got a great education system. We have the freedom to live our lives however we want, morally, you know, you want a divorce, you want to have multiple sex partners, you want to do whatever you want. That's freedom. That's our peace. That's our prosperity. And of course, as long as we can make sure Kim Jong-un doesn't push the button in North Korea, then we really have peace. The one threat to our world's peace is the Bible. It's Jesus Christ. Because the Bible reigns people in and says prosperity, peace is not money. It's not freedom as far as sexuality is concerned. True freedom is to follow our Lord Jesus Christ and obey his commandments. So there's a lot of pushback by the world to the church. It's something that we are certainly seeing in our day and age as far as Christian education is concerned. If you look at Justin Trudeau's policies regarding getting a job with the government, better click the box that says you agree with abortion. A lot of pushback. But Paul says, for them... The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. These images are, are used to, to show the unexpectedness of Christ's return. Nobody knows when it will be. Like a thief comes in the middle of the night, or even a woman who's pregnant. She's no, she knows she's going to go into labor. She doesn't know when. Often it comes totally unexpectedly. In the same way, Jesus Christ will come unexpectedly for the world. Nobody knows. You know, sometimes even throughout my ministry, I've heard it again and again from people who say, I'm pretty sure that Jesus Christ is returning now because things are so bad. I said, you haven't got a clue. There's bad stuff going on throughout history, throughout the world. These keep us on our toes. You don't know. Might be another thousand years, or it might be tomorrow night or tonight that Jesus Christ returns. We don't know. And our Lord Jesus Christ made that very clear in Matthew 24, 25. Remember the parable of the, the ten virgins, the five wise, the five foolish? Those ready, not ready? You always got to be ready. Now, what Paul is saying here is that the, the return of Jesus Christ 
will mean for those who do not believe that there is no escape. No escape from what? No escape from the day of the Lord. We know from the book of Romans, or a book of Revelation, made very clear there that when our Lord Jesus Christ returns, people will be caught off guard, but everybody will know it. Can you imagine? Not just we sitting here in St. Albert, but people in Papua New Guinea, people walking on the Chinese Great Wall, the scientists in the Antarctica. We will all at the same time hear the trumpet sound, the call of the archangel, and Christ will return. And the reaction of the world is also described in the book of Revelation. Uh, the unbelievers will scream, they'll head for the hills, and they'll ask for the mountains to come crashing down on them. There's no escape. Revelation 20 makes clear, the lake of fire is the second death, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's very clear that if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, the last day of the world will be the most horrifying experience that the world has ever seen. Now, Paul's point is not to scare us as Christians. Yes, there is that element. You know, you have to examine yourself to make sure that you are ready. But what Paul is trying to communicate is this day is a scary day for unbelievers but for a believer, it's an amazing day. It's a beautiful day because Jesus Christ is coming to take you home. That also gives us tremendous comfort, brothers and sisters, when we, we look at the world around us and see the immorality and the anti-Christian spirit of our, of our age. You know, sure, that, that, that bothers us and, and, and it scares us a bit. But more than anything else, what a pity. We have for the world around us. Do you know what's going to happen to you? That you're going to weep and gnash your teeth eternally? If I had the opportunity, I would love to spend an afternoon with Justin Trudeau and talk to him. You call yourself a Christian, and yet you agree with abortion. Do you know what the implications of that is, my prime minister? Will you not repent? Will you not be ready for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ? Obviously, there's a, a great, there should be a great passion to evangelize to a world that is unaware and unprepared and for whom there will be no escape. At the same time for us, in our oppression, we know that one day we will be totally delivered from all that. And that does bring us to our second point, to make sure in our own minds that we are ready. For Christ's return. So our second point is about the preparedness of believers. And we are prepared. And you know why we're prepared? Because we believe that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. Paul has says the people of the world will be caught off guard by Christ's return. But then he writes in verse 4, But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. We don't know when Christ returns. doesn't matter. It's not going to catch us off guard because we love Jesus. And the moment we hear the trumpet sound, we go, yeah, here he comes, right? And Paul says, puts it positively, we are awake and sober. 
Now, Paul's using so much imagery in this passage. He talks about a thief in the night. He talks about darkness and, and night. He talks about sleep now. He talks about drunkenness, sober or, or drunk. All these images are, are put together to, to make us realize that, you know, nighttime, sleeping, that's when you're vulnerable. We all know that when we sleep at night, when you're in a deep sleep, you're vulnerable, right? If somebody quietly sneaks into your room, you won't know it. And if you're drunk, you're even going to know it less. And that's what the world is. The world's fast asleep. It's got full REM going on. It's drunk. Hasn't got a clue what's going to happen. Scary for the world, but not for a Christian. Paul writes in verse 5, You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Now, we should really pay attention to the details here. We are children of the light. What is the light? Well, you know, when we are preparing for Christmas, we sing, of course, Isaiah 9. For people who walk in darkness, the light has shined. And that's picked up in John 1, where we read about the Word or the Logos who's made flesh. That's the Son of God, our Emmanuel, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then John writes, in him, that's in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. A few lines later, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Jesus Christ is our light. He shines in the darkness of sin and misery and slavery to Satan, and he makes the light shine to draw us out of that. It's his blood that liberates us. It's his spirit that causes us to be born again so that we're not stumbling in the darkness and drunkenness, but we are children of the light who know our Lord Jesus Christ and live to his praise and glory. In fact, Paul often speaks about this imagery of light. We think of Ephesians 5 verse 8, for once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Children of the light are children who are walking with the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit in all things, loving God and loving their neighbor. Paul says they're not only children of the light, they're children of the day. And when I read that, I, I think that Paul is saying more than just day, daylight. We are children of the day. Day of the Lord. You know, on the calendar of my life, there is a red X on the great day that is the day of the Lord. I don't know exactly when that will be, but the red letter day of my life is the return of my Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a child of the day. My life is defined. My life is being prepared for that moment when Jesus Christ returns on the clouds of heaven. In verse 6, Paul gives exhortation to live as children of light in the day. So then, let us not like others who are asleep, but let us, be, let us keep awake and be sober. That's how we're ready for Jesus Christ's return. Uh, stay awake and be sober. And see that in the image of the thief who comes in the night. Maybe you've had it before that someone broke into your home a place of business or your car, 
is a hor horrible experience. In my previous congregation, there was a, a young family. They had a mom and a few kids. And during the night, while they were asleep, a couple of guys broke into the house, went through the whole house. They came into the master bedroom, took a small dresser, took it out in the hall so they could empty it. So the family woke up in the morning knowing that these thieves have been throughout their house and in their bedroom in the night. It, it's horrible. And how do you stand on guard against that? Well, what you could do is put a chair in the middle of your house and hold a, a can of bear spray, and you just wait day and night for a thief to break in, and then you give them a shot of bear spray. That's very effective. There's not much of a life. <laughs> you know, you do got to leave the house. You do have to sleep. So you take reasonable precautions. You know, get better locks. Get a security system. But what about being ready for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do we have to be ready in the sense that we always need to be reading the Bible? We always need to pray. You know, so that if Jesus Christ comes, he'll see me reading my Bible. I'm ready. But that's no life either. Of course, Bible reading and prayer is important. But I got a job. I got to go to school. I want to go for a walk or a jog. I got a family. There's more, more to do. So how are we ready for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ? We understand that Bible reading and prayer is so important that we are connected with our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll talk a little bit more about that this afternoon. But primarily, whatever we do, wherever we are, we have this awareness and consciousness that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior. And life is very, very focused. It's purpose-driven. It's intentional. You know, I, I live with the awareness that I, I don't want to live in sin. I have a Savior, and I want to live to His praise and His glory. I mean, that's the major theme and intention of our life. It doesn't matter where we are or what we're doing. When Christ returns, it'll be okay. You know, I, I could be sitting in a pub with my best friend having a, having a pint. I could be watching a movie with my wife. I could be sitting over a, a hole in the ice trying to catch a perch. When I hear the trumpet sound, the call of the archangel, and I'll look up and say, Jesus, I've been waiting for you. What an exciting moment. There at the fishing hole. It doesn't matter. As long as we know him and love him and have a relationship with him, then in every aspect of our life, we are awake we are sober, and we are ready for his return. That brings us to our, our final point, the encouragement that we have regarding the return of Jesus Christ. Verse 8 makes clear that we're still on the same topic, but it's verse 9 that is particularly full of comfort and hope. For God did not destine us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Destined. You hear in that the word predestination. Election. God elected us to salvation. Paul explains that in the beginning of Ephesians 1. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. My brother and my sister, before you were even conceived in the womb of your mother, God knew you. God loved you. He elected you to salvation in Jesus Christ. We came out of darkness not because we had the power to do that. We came out of darkness because God 
drew us out of darkness in the blood and spirit of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the reason Paul can say in verse 8, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So because of our salvation in Jesus Christ, we also have the, the um, protective material to stand on guard against the attacks of the evil one. And Paul loves the imagery of, of the soldier, breastplate, sword, and helmet, that, that sort of thing. It actually comes from Isaiah 59. But he says, what our, what our um, defensive armor is, it's faith, it's love, and it's hope. You've heard Paul say that before. How, how can this be defensive? Well, faith... Faith is knowing and being certain that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. And you know what? When that's clear in my heart, when the most important thing and the clearest thing in my life is Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, you can't throw anything at me that will knock me off the perch of that faith. Do what you want. Throw me into prison. Deny me a government job. You're not going to unsettle me from faith in Jesus Christ. You can't attack me on that. Same thing with love. I love God and I love my neighbor. When you love God, who's going to get in between that? Even loving my neighbor includes loving my enemy. If you attack me, you may hurt my feelings. You might make my life difficult, but I still love you. Because you know what? When you attack me, you're just sealing your doom in hell. And I'll love you. And I want you to repent. And hope, of course, hope is the certainty of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as a Christian, you know, life is not always easy. And we do need to be well aware that we're living in a culture where being a Christian might even become more challenging. But who will not gladly exchange a little bit of suffering for an eternity of perfect joy in our Lord Jesus Christ in the new heaven and new earth? When we have this faith, when we have this love, when we have this hope, we have all the armament we need to stand against the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, when a Roman soldier put on his armor in the morning, I don't know what it would take him, maybe half an hour and he was good to go. You can't do that as a Christian. You can't just one day say, okay, I'm going to put on this armor and I'm done. No, as a Christian, you know, our, our walk needs to be close to the Lord. And that, that means reading your Bible and reflecting on it and praying about that so that, you know, Jesus Christ is very clear in our hearts and in our minds. And there is nothing that you can do to knock me off, off that perch. You know, sometimes as Christians, we do have struggles. I think in our day and age, one of the struggles is fear. We're so, so scared. Like, what's the government going to do with, with, our, with our school and, and the support? What is our government going to do if it denies a government job, if you don't tick the box that says, I agree with abortion? What next? My Canada pension? You're going to deny that unless I agree with the mindset of, 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 a, of a, a, a liberal, uh, unchristian government? And we can get so scared that we want to surrender to the agenda 
of our world. Well, that doesn't happen, brothers and sisters, when you are a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, who just loves reading the Bible and getting to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and knowing the promises that we have in Him. On that note, notice in verse 10, it says, He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together in, in Him. I suspect that when most readers read that, they go back to chapter 4, awake or asleep, that refers to whether you're alive or you have died. Paul's not talking about that here. Chapter 4 has a different Greek word for sleep. Here in our text, the word for sleep is a bad thing. It means you're not awake, you're not aware, you're not, you're not ready. So what, what Paul is saying is that as a Christian, sometimes we fall. Sometimes, sometimes we sin. may very well be that when the trumpet sounds, I'm having a huge argument with my wife and I'm not being very nice. Or maybe I have had one drink too many. Or maybe I'm in the midst of, of uh, slandering and, and gossiping about somebody. That may be the moment that Jesus Christ returns. Does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus Christ says, you're out, you weep and gnash your teeth, you don't go to heaven. If that's the case, heaven is going to be a pretty empty place. You know, we're not talking here about living in sin. We're talking about the, the reality of what Paul says in Romans 10. Even when I try to do the right thing, I still do what's wrong. We are sinners. And when the trumpet sounds and our Lord Jesus Christ returns on the clouds of heaven, He's not looking for a perfect people. He's looking for a people with, with all their warts and their blemishes who still love Him. And even though we are sinners and we have our weaknesses and our struggles, He will not only wipe the tears from our eyes, He will totally transform us by the Holy Spirit that we cannot sin anymore but live to His praise and His glory. So Paul ends with these words, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. We need to have this discussion as a congregation, as a couple, as a family, to encourage one another to live in the comfort that our Lord Jesus Christ is returning. And in that sense, life becomes very balanced. On the one hand, we know Jesus Christ is returning. That's not my total focus, okay? I'm not just saying, you know, life's not important because it's all about Jesus returning. Now, he is coming. I don't know when. I'm ready for it. I'll even pray, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But living in the assurance of that, now my life now, in my work or education, my recreation, my family, I can live a peaceful, peaceful, joyful life knowing that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior and it is well. It is well with my soul. Amen.